Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm your host, Seema Yasmin. Have you ever been stuck in a disagreement that no amount of talking or facts can untangle? Coming up, a conversation with journalist Amanda Ripley, author of the new book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. From divorce proceedings and neighborhood feuds to the Middle East peace process, Amanda spent four years analyzing how we end up stuck in high-conflict situations. Find out what lessons we can learn from guerrilla fighters in Colombia and even astronauts to help guide us towards what Amanda calls good conflict. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm your host, Seema Yasmin. I'm a public health doctor and a science journalist. And joining me this hour is Amanda Ripley. She's an investigative journalist and author of the new book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Amanda, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So it's been almost exactly a year since you were last on Forum. Back in April of 2020, you talked about how we can effectively navigate crisis. And now you're taking a deep dive into conflict. And Amanda, you start your book in what to me felt like a really unexpected way. You write, we need more conflict. You say that a life without conflict is like a life without love. And I was reading this thinking, but everything is so polarized right now and it feels like there's too much conflict. So why do you tell us that conflict is necessary? And tell us the distinction between high conflict and good conflict. I know it sounds really counterintuitive, but what happened was about four years ago, I went off on this quest to try to understand how people get out of really ugly conflicts, personal, political, all kinds of conflict, because you know it just felt like we were stuck as a country in so many conflicts that just weren't going anywhere interesting on social media and politics and the news. So I followed people who were trapped themselves in all kinds of disputes at some point, a politician in California, a former gang leader in Chicago, an environmental activist in England. Uh, I even talked to astronauts because it turns out there is plenty of conflict in outer space too on every mission. Uh, And I found out that I was asking the wrong question. It's not about getting out of conflict. It's about getting out of high conflict. So all those people I followed were at some point trapped in this thing called high conflict and they aren't anymore. They didn't give up. They didn't change their minds. They're still fighting for what they care about. They're just much 
better at it and much less, you know, miserable in their own heads because they're in a different kind of conflict, which I've come to call good conflict. So tell us more about this distinction between that high conflict that we don't want to be and it's not good for us, but then this kind of good or productive conflict that you argue we need more of. Yeah, you know, I sort of liken it to fear or stress. I used to write about human behavior and extreme events, disasters, so forth. And one of the things that researchers learned about that is that a little bit of stress is good for our performance under in a life or death situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is that with regular people who don't have good training, it becomes, there's like a tipping point you reach where the amount of stress is counterproductive. You lose um, your ability to think and uh, even, you know, hold things and, t- and remember things. You really start to deteriorate in many ways. So you want to hit that sweet spot of stress, right? The same is true with conflict. So high conflict is the kind we're seeing a lot of today. And it can start small, but it gradually takes on a life of its own. And our brains behave differently in this state. We become very certain of our own righteousness, and we make co- costly mistakes about our options and the people who disagree with us. And probably the most chilling pattern I've seen in every high conflict I've studied all over the globe, big or small, is that people drawn into high conflict eventually start to mimic the behavior of their adversaries. So they start to do the thing that they went into the fight to stop without realizing it, right? So that's one of the diabolical consequences of high conflict. By comparison, good conflict is the kind of conflict where there is still some opportunity for surprise, for curiosity. People ask more questions. You can still be really angry and and heated and it can Mm -hmm. be really stressful, but it goes somewhere. There's There's a possibility of it moving somewhere, whereas high conflict is the destination. Right. And so before we talk more about how we get unstuck, which I think many of us are interested in, I want to talk a bit more about how we end up stuck in that place of high conflict. And Amanda, in your book, as you mentioned, you introduce us to really interesting characters. You also take us to very interesting places, including one of my favorite destinations in LA, which is the La Brea Tar Pits. Anyone who's not been, this is basically a living quagmire. There are these gloopy, hot asphalt pits that are filled with the bones of thousands of mammoths and saber-toothed cats that roamed Ice Age Los Angeles. So why do you take us there? And what could this living quagmire teach us about conflict? Yeah, you know, it's such an incredible place. And it's, it's an amazing analogy, really, for the situation so many of us are in. What may have happened with the La Brea tar pits is um, in the last ice age, uh, researchers think that one day, tens of thousands of years ago, a large animal like an ancient bison, say, lumbered into the tar pits, which is sort of this gurgling asphalt, and it quickly became stuck, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, hooves were anchored in this sludge and started grunting in distress, as you might imagine. It only took a few centimeters of this muck to immobilize a really big animal. And the bison's alarm attracted the attention of predators like, say, the now extinct dire wolf. And dire wolves are social animals like coyotes Mm -hmm. and humans. So a few of those wolves came trotting up and naturally pounced on the bison. And then 
got themselves stuck. And on and on this goes, more creatures arrive, you know, slowly the carcasses of the animals sink into the asphalt and the population of the doomed grew geometrically. So you can start to see how this functions as a metaphor, right? Conflict, high conflict is a trap. Mm-hmm. Once you get drawn in, once it gets to a certain point, it, it, it appeals to all kinds of normal and understandable human needs and desires. But once we enter, we find we can't get out. And the more we try to get out, the worse the situation gets. Mm. And you take us from the tar pits to outer space to explore conflict. So what can NASA teach us about this? Yeah, it's really interesting because NASA is very concerned about conflict because they would like to do these sort of long duration, deep space missions to Mars, which are, you know, so intense and you're so far from any communication with Earth that you can't you can't have high conflict. Right. Mm -hmm. So they've learned that there's going to be conflict on every mission. You can, as one woman who studies this told me, you can you can select for a low drama crew, but not a no drama crew. That's just <laughs> the way humans are, right? So then it's about, okay, well, how do you keep the conflict in that good zone? Uh, and they've, they've learned a bunch of really interesting things. Um, but one of the things they've learned is to try to um, prevent, obviously, high conflict from ever starting because of the tar pits problem. Like once it starts, it's a little late. Um, they also are very careful about obviously who they select to be astronauts, they train them in conflict mediation, but that's that's really still not enough. So one thing they do is, um, you know, I was talking with people who do these deep space simulations where they're in a room, you know, <laughs> with strangers and pretending to go to Mars for months on end without sunrises or sunsets or real-time contact with friends or family. And, um, you know, what they've found is they have to really invest in positive interactions every day with each other. And then when they do have conflict, it's much more likely to be good conflict. This mm-hmm. is something that uh, the Gottman, John and Julie Gottman, who study marriage, call the magic ratio. So it's about, in their research, about five to one. You need about five positive interactions for every one negative, And then you're more likely to stay in, in good conflict. There are these really interesting items throughout your book, symbols, really. There's a crock pot, there are Legos, even a broken hibachi grill. And all of these items become center points during mostly divorce proceedings. There's even an anecdote of this judge who gets so fed up with this couple who's getting divorced that the judge says, you can have my hibachi grill. And I think we all know intellectually, it's not about the crock pot or the grill. But why is it that we become fixated on something that isn't at the heart of the conflict. Why do we lose the understory? You know, I think there's a reward in our brain Mm. for focusing on the crockpot or the Legos or whatever we're fighting over. The thing that we talk about on and on and on without talking about the real thing, because it's easier. So Mm. talking about the Legos is easier than talking about my deep fear that if my ex-husband gets the Legos, then my kid will want to be at his house, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's that I'll lose the affection of my child, right? That's much harder and more vulnerable than talking about fairness and and who should get which Mm -hmm. Legos, right? So this is a kind of 
silly example, but you know, there are many, many examples like this. Um, and many times it has to do with money. You know, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and she was saying how she bought these, she loves to run and she bought these kind of expensive running shoes and she felt mixed about it, but she just really felt like this was important to her and she wanted to do this for her own health. And her husband got really upset, like mm. beyond what you would expect about the cost of these running shoes. Mm even though, you know, it's her money and they could afford it. Uh, and so I started asking her different questions, which is helpful in conflict. You know, what, what do you think this is really about? You know, what, what does this remind you of from other fights you've had? Like, what, does the, what do the running shoes represent, right. right, in your husband's mind, which is much more helpful. And we've all been there, right? And I think sometimes we catch ourselves like, I'm having a fight over a chipped mug it's really not about the mug. When we find ourselves in that place arguing about the hibachi grill, the crockpot, the Legos, whatever, what's a starting point for getting unstuck from that? Well, you know, my husband and I have started really referring to the crockpot mm -hmm. in the argument, which is sort of a quicker way sometimes to get to the bottom of it. Mm. Like, you know, what what is the crockpot here? Like, what are we really arguing about? What is what is the and it's not easy to do, right? Especially the more upset you get, the harder it is right. to do. But, uh, you know, one thing to do, obviously, is to slow down the conflict. There's a ton of research on this. There's lots of ways to do it. But you really want to take a break for like 30 minutes and, you know, do something totally different and then come back. And then it may be easier to talk about what is really going on here. Like, is this really about the thermostat or <laughs> is this about something else? So slowing it down, calling out the crockpot, the trainers, whatever that might be. Those are some of the starting points. We're talking about conflict and how to navigate it with Amanda Ripley, investigative journalist and author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. What questions do you all have about interpersonal conflict for Amanda? And if you've solved a major conflict in your own life, how did you do it? We want to know. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll also be joined after the break by Omari Sinclair, a violence interrupter from West Oakland. We'll be back in a minute. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Seema Yasmin, and we've been speaking with Amanda Ripley, whose new book asks why we get trapped in high-conflict situations and how we can get unstuck. And now we're joined by Omari Sinclair, a violence interrupter with Youth Alive in Oakland. Omari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we talk more about what your organization does and how you do it, I want to point out one of the mission statements of Youth Alive. You talk about giving support to people who are wounded and grieving because of conflict. And knowing just a little about your own story, Omari, 
it sounds like the kind of support that you could have benefited from as a child and as a young man. So can you tell us something about your experiences of conflict? Um, well, um, at Youth Alive, we deal with um, all kinds of conflicts um, and different um, situations. Well, with me being a violence interrupter, I am in the streets very often. So I deal with a lot of um, shooting victims and um, and myself have been um, a victim of gunshot, of me being shot. Um, I can kind of relate to them more. So when mm-hmm. I go out there, um, I go out there with an open mind and I go out there from a victim standpoint. So I'm sh- so we show a lot of empathy, mm-hmm. you know, and sincere. You have to be sincere to get through, you know, to a um, person who is a victim. It's hard if you've never been the victim. It's hard. You, you, you have a conversation with a person and you tell them, like, oh, that must have been terrible. And the first thing they do is look at you and they're not going to give you the same respect because they know you haven't been through what I've been through. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you have to show, you have to tell them, like, I've been there. And then you tell them your story. And then that's how you warm them up, you know, because I am you. This is what I do because this is what I've been through. I've been shot. I lost my mother. I lost this. And um, at Youth Alive, um, we, you know, don't get caught up in the idea everybody's a victim you know, a perpetrator, you know, we work with all people impacted by violence, you know, because nobody who commits the violence didn't already experience violence. So to break the cycle of youth alive, you know, we try to heal the trauma and interrupt the violence before it, you know, it gets deadly. Yeah, and you're really leaning on your own experiences, it sounds like. I'm, I'm so sorry for the losses that you've suffered, and, and thank you for sharing that with us. Amari, you also talk about convincing angry victims and their loved ones not to retaliate. And I'm so curious, how do you successfully engage people when sometimes you are up against decades-long feuds? How do you break that cycle of retaliation and trauma? It, it, it goes back again to my uh, personal experience. Mm-hmm. I think you, I break down the history, you know, it's pros and cons and everything. And um, and I learned, um, I deal with a lot of youth also. So I learned um, these kids, they just need attention. So when they lack attention, um, they go out and do stupid things. They get attention. So um, when it comes down to lifelong feuds and different things like that, you know, I break it down to them, you know, my experience. And then you show them like, OK, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. You know, at the end of the day, um, when it comes to violence, there's no winners. Everybody get hurt. So I have to stress that point to them. Like, you're going to get hurt. They're going to get hurt. And not just you and them, your family and their family. Right. You know, it's going to be a recurring cycle in the community. So I stress the point to them of that. And if you love your family, you love your kids, what's more, you know, valuable? You know, you going to retaliate on this dude right here or you raising your kid? Are you making your mom or your dad proud and you, your family seeing you succeed? And and so I just stress the point to the individuals in my community. And I lead by example also, like I said, because I'm still here mm-hmm. and I'm successful in what I'm doing. So I, I show them by example by being around them and with them every day. Right. And Omari, you are talking about really high stakes, violent situations. How do you get people to keep open lines of communication and really listen to one another in those high conflict moments? 
Okay. Um, it, it's it's kind of um, simple. All right. I can't simplify it in one conversation, but I can sum it up. Mm -hmm. um, being from the streets um, holds more weight than coming in as a psychologist with a degree. Mm -hmm. So um, you can take them to counseling and it won't work. But speaking from my standpoint, like someone that's them, they will listen. So, so basically, um, at Youth Alive, um, they tried to hire and have hired uh, people, you know, um, individuals like me that come from the community, have strong ties to the community, they have a voice in the community. So it's like um, every day when we go out there, we put ourselves on the line. We put our reputations on the line. We have a professional reputation, then we have the reputation that bestowed us from the streets. You know what I mean? So when it's come down to this work, we have to use and exercise our street credibility to get the job done. It, it would never be possible if we didn't have any street credibility, if we didn't have a name in the community where we can go into a middle of a war zone, basically, you know, and just throw our hands up and like, hey, stop. Let me talk to you. Let me talk to you. Everybody can't do it. It's a sensitive job. Um, very hands-on. If you want to be successful in it and see uh, positive results, you have to be very, very hands-on and mm -hmm. you have to be there. You can't speak from a phone. You can't be 100 miles away. You have to be right there. They have to see you to respect you. I know. If they don't see you, yeah. Yes, I know that you've been through it, right, Omari? As you said, this resonates with exactly your own life experiences. Yes, ma'am. I, um, I actually, this is a lifelong dream. This is actually, um, you know, a lot of people grow up and say, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a policeman, I want to be this. I always want to give back to my community because um, the trauma that I experienced, like I said, um, with the drugs, um, losing my mom to that and, and being um, a, a, sh a shot before. So I always told myself, it was like nobody's story is more hurtful and painful to mine. Mm. If I can get my story through these individuals that feel like they can't make it and they seen where I came from and where I'm at now, everybody can make it. Cause I got, a, my story is deep. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what I do to get over, you know, and get across to the, these individuals is my story. It's a deep story. I tell them my story. Um, I speak from empathy, mm -hmm. sincerity, and I let them know that if I can do it, you can do it. And a lot of people knows me and they knows my story. So, when I go out there and speak, it's like, okay, he's speaking the truth. If he can do it, we can do it, you know? So Yeah, that's yeah. A, a really powerful story, Omari. Thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your life experiences and for educating us about why you do the work that you do and, and some of the ways that you work to break that cycle of violence. Amanda, Omari's experiences of conflict brought him to this line of work, right, dedicated to ending violence. Your childhood, and you write about this in the book, also informed your career choices. Can you tell us a little bit about that little girl sitting on the bottom step? Yeah, you know, I grew up with a fair amount of conflict, and it wasn't terrible. It wasn't physically violent, um, so I don't want to exaggerate it. But the way that I dealt with it 
when my parents would fight is that I would listen to it. I would monitor it, you know, like I would keep track of it, keep it in my sight. And I think I felt like that was a way to have control over it, you know, to be able to predict what was going to happen next. And of course, that was not that was not true, right? But at the time, that's one way of dealing with it. Um, and so over time, as a journalist, I kept doing that, right? You know, I covered terrorism, disasters, crime, all kinds of human conflict, and just sort of kept it in my sights. And it was in a weird way, reassuring to me to kind of uh, keep it, keep track of it in this way. And then eventually I started realizing, particularly with our political polarization, which I was writing about years ago, that, you know, this wasn't working. Like I actually didn't understand the conflict and just watching it from the sidelines was not was not particularly illuminating anymore. It was mm-hmm. the level of polarization and conflict was beyond what I understood. And so I realized I had to sort of stop doing what I was doing because I think it's really easy for journalists to make conflict worse even when they don't mean to. Uh, but I didn't know what that was, right? So that's when I started spending a lot of time with people who study conflict, people who are conflict survivors like Omari, people who interrupt conflict in all different ways all over the world violent and nonviolent because mm-hmm. they understand conflict in a way that I really didn't as a journalist, uh, that there's this deeper understory of conflict. And it's really important, I think, to get smarter about it. Um, and that's what, you know, it sounds like what Omari is helping young men do is to sort of skip all some of the stages that he had to go through. You know, high conflict can be very narrowing and confining. It starts to feel like you have no choices. You really lose your peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. And what he's doing is widening their lens, right? By telling them his own story, showing them the various scenarios, trying to to help them see the universality of what they're going through and trying to revive other identities. You notice he, he talked about other things that matter to them, right? Um, whether it be their families or other things, this is also very common to getting people out of that trap of high conflict. It, it's very hard to get people to give up an existing conflict identity, but it is possible to revive another identity that they care about outside of the conflict. So that's really, really key. Right. This idea that your identity can be so intertwined with the conflict. If you drop that, who are you even, um, was a really powerful point in your book. Amanda, we talked earlier about those symbols, those things that we end up arguing about where we really lose sight of what the conflict is truly about. We use that crockpot example. And Douglas has written in to say that my wife and my crockpot this morning was coffee beans, specifically unground coffee beans being used in our drip coffee. To me, it represents a waste, laziness and an unwillingness to listen to my pointing it out in the past. To her, it's a petty and occasional oversight not worth stressing. Recognising that the unground coffee beans represent different things to us both, Douglas is asking, how do we get to the true source of our conflict and tension? Amanda, what do you say? Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that he's able to identify what it represents, right? Like the understory of that conflict is about laziness. I mean, that's a that's a strong, that's a strong word, but I think that's often the feeling. It's, mm-hmm. it's wasteful. And he also said that it it showed to him that she wasn't listening to him. Like mm-hmm. he wasn't heard. That gets at a really, I mean, almost every conflict has something to do with not feeling heard. Mm. And the the good thing about that is 
if you can just show people you've heard them, which is not easy to do, we're not taught to do it. But if you are taught to do it, and I can talk about that, if you just show people you're really trying to understand them genuinely, all of a sudden it lowers the heat. People become much more open to you know other ideas, to other voices, to things they don't maybe want to hear. Mm-hmm. But that is the first step, though, is people need to feel like they've been heard. You know, so yeah. if you literally say, "I get that," to you, it sounds like it sounds like for you, those unground coffee beans are like just a sign of of waste right. and, and and laziness. Is that right? And you don't have to agree, right? This is the key distinction. You don't have to agree. But when you say that, all of a sudden the person can lower their guard mm-hmm. and it makes a whole cascading list of other things possible. We are definitely going to come back to this point about being listened to and actually being understood. If you're listening, though, what questions do you have about interpersonal conflict? And if you've solved a major conflict in your own life, we want to know how you manage that. Please give us a call now at 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We have a call now from Camille, who's in San Francisco. Hi, Camille. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, My question for Amanda is about when you are engaged in a conflict in which you are coming from a a different, a significantly different position from the person you're engaging with. And I'm asking specifically through my lens as a parent of young children, right? So obviously there is, we have very different levels of um, maturity and very different goals. Um, uh, uh, When I am in conflict with my children, it can be very difficult for us to agree on what the crockpot is. So um, I don't know if it's possible for you to generalize outside of this very specific parent-child example, but if you could speak a a little bit generally to um, how you make progress in conflict when you have um, such a huge, significant um, disparity or asymmetry between the parties engaged. Thank you. Yeah, Amanda, what do you say to that? That power differential can be really important. Right. And also developmental differential, right? Um, so I, I love this question because I have an answer. It, this is a hard problem conflict. So a lot of times, you know, I can't say, you know, the answer is seven, you know, and I always want to, right? But you can't. This one, there is an answer to slow down that conflict. And, and it goes to that idea of people wanting to feel heard. When we're in conflict, we think, oh, this other person wants it their way. So this, let's say, child wants to be able to stay up until midnight, as an example. That's actually only some small percentage of what they want, is what I've learned. So I did about 80 hours of conflict mediation training for this book, and I went into it a little a little cocky. Like, I thought I knew how to interview people <laughs> and, and make them believe I was listening. You know, I'd done it for 20 years mm-hmm. at Time Magazine and other places. But it, it turned out, I learned pretty fast that you know, nodding and smiling and furrowing your brow is not listening. And people can tell the difference. So what you really have to do is prove in real time that you have understood what they have said. And this is the part that's easy to forget. Check if you got it right. This is something I learned from Gary Friedman, who's a really outstanding, world-renowned conflict mediator uh, in the Bay Area. And he calls it looping for understanding. So when the child says, I want to stay up till midnight, <laughs> I this is unfair, you know, so-and-so gets to stay up and it's not fair and da-da-da-da-da. And then you just really listen, like as if you're trying to understand 
someone from a faraway island, you know, in a different culture and say, it sounds like you feel like this is really unfair, that you should be able to stay up till midnight. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just not fair. Is that right? And then listen, because if it's right, they will say exactly. And their whole face and posture will likely change. If it's not right, they'll say, no, it's, it's because you said this and I said this and my older brother gets to do this. And, and that means you didn't quite get it right. So you try again. Oh, I see. It's unfair because your older brother gets to stay up late and you <laughs> should too. Is that right? You see what I'm doing? So, and the amazing thing in parenting, I do this with my own child, is you don't have to do anything else. Mm. Once the kid feels heard much of the time, it's over. That's it. You can move on and they go to bed. It's like a miracle. I'm serious. Mm. It's really amazing. That, that's really powerful. And, and speaking of family, in the book, you write that an estimated 38 million Americans stopped talking to family members either during or after the 2016 presidential election. And Catherine writes in with this comment related to that. Um, she's saying that she has this conflict with her brother. Um, how do I get out of conflict with my brother who insist the election was stolen, I believe democracy is important. How do you broach that, Amanda? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the first thing to acknowledge is that it's really hard. These are really hard conversations to have. And it's important to to realize why it's so hard. It's not just, ah, they're so wrong. And this is such a toxic mindset. And those are true, right? But it's also whenever space opens up, between ourselves and people we love and identify with, it's painful. This mm-hmm. is hardwired. Yeah. We are, this is just how we are wired to be group animals, right? So that is painful. So it's first to notice, okay, that's what's causing me this pain. It's not just the facts of the problem, although that's part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you more easily what not to do. Don't try to convince the person with facts. Mm. It just will not work. Mm. I wish it would. Oh my God, I wish it would. (laughs) But it's taken me a long time to accept, you know, as somebody who dedicated my life to trying to convince people by finding facts, it just doesn't work in Mm. high conflict. Uh, Don't humiliate them. Don't humiliate, don't make fun of them. That again will make things worse. Mm -hmm. And if you can possibly avoid it, don't sever the relationship because they might be enthralled to this idea right now, but they won't always be. And you want to be there when the opening arises. Thank you, Amanda. We're coming up on a break. Stay tuned for more of our conversation about high conflict with journalist and author Amanda Ripley. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking about navigating conflict and getting unstuck with Amanda Ripley, journalist and author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Welcome back. What questions do you have about interpersonal conflict? And if you've solved a big conflict in your life, we want to know how you manage to untangle yourself. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. And also you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at 
KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Amanda, we have this comment from Jordan. Jordan writes, I had a girlfriend who loved escalating conflict. I tried hard to listen, understand and validate her concerns, but it turned out that isn't what she wanted. My attempts to pause or slow down were met with greater rage. I stayed too long and eventually I had to leave. I still feel bad that I couldn't get us to manage our conflict. Jordan's comment, Amanda, reminds me of what you write about in your book. You call them four conflict fire starters or accelerants. Can you tell us about those as you respond to Jordan? Yeah, so there are certain conditions that seem to reliably lead to dysfunctional conflict across all different contexts. Um, one of them are uh, is this idea of humiliation. Anything that makes people feel small really ignites conflict. Another are conflict entrepreneurs, people. Sometimes it's other family members, sometimes it's coworkers, sometimes it's politicians or platforms that, you know, really exploit conflict for their own ends. They get something out of it. Sometimes it's something obvious like profit, but more often it's something like a sense of purpose, of connection, of camaraderie and power. So with Jordan's example, I want to actually connect that to what Omari was telling us about gang violence. Mm-hmm. So often external conflict comes from internal conflict, you know, and, and that internal conflict, whatever it is that that person has not dealt with, needs to be dealt with by that person before the external conflict will start, will stop, right? Uh, and, and sometimes people are not ready to do that or willing to do that or able to do that. Right. But often, you know, that old expression, hurt people hurt. There's a, there's a lot of research that shows that that is true. And sometimes you get uh, what psychologists sometimes refer to as high conflict personalities, like people who become very habituated, used to using conflict as a way to, first of all, protect themselves from being vulnerable, from having to deal with internal conflict or fear, uh, and because you externalize it, you put it on someone else. So you spread the pain around in different ways. And that can be really, really hard to deal with. Um, but it is something to be to be aware of that there's only so much you can do. It seems like Jordan did a lot of those mm-hmm. things um, when the other person isn't ready, willing, or able to deal with the what they're bringing to the conflict. You mentioned a little bit about social media and our online personas in the book, and I'm really fascinated by this because it can feel really toxic sometimes to engage with these social media platforms. What did you learn about the way that we engage or don't engage with conflict online? What can we do better? Yeah, so as we've designed them, places like Twitter, Facebook are, are really designed to reward high conflict and conflict entrepreneurs. They don't have to be that way. And I'm sure many people listening have feeds that they've purposefully selected. So there isn't a lot of high conflict, but there are a lot of incentives built in in any kind of attention economy to really propel conflict entrepreneurs, to reward them with attention, with likes, with follows, right? We could design that and should design that differently. And there are other sites that that are social that are not like that, right? We are, we are hardwired for good conflict just as much as high conflict. Hmm. So the culture you're in really matters. Um, so one of the things that's important if you want to stay out of high conflict is distancing yourself from the conflict entrepreneurs in your midst, right? So it might be changing your social media feed. It might be getting off cable news. Like figure out who is benefiting 
from this conflict, mm-hmm. right? Because it's usually not, it's usually not most people who are caught in it. It's usually conflict entrepreneurs who are benefiting, people who are really getting something out of it and being aware how we're being manipulated by conflict entrepreneurs, whether it's people, platform, pundits, that is really the first step and deciding if you want to distance yourself from those people and changing your tone. I mean, now on Twitter, I loop people all the time. I mean, you know, and this is another thing to do with family members and friends who are believing in conspiracy theories. You know, you want to make them feel heard and you don't, you don't agree. You don't give up what you hold dear. Definitely not. But you make them feel heard. You get curious, like genuinely curious, which can be hard. Mm-hmm. And I do it on Twitter, right? I do it all the time. So it, it's a way to kind of shift those dynamics. And, and it really can change high conflict into good. But we have to be careful in that engagement, right, to avoid any kind of humiliation of the other person, especially social humiliation. You kind of warn us about this in the book. Why is that really important to consider? Yeah, this is the thing that I think has been most sort of seared into my brain from doing this work is humiliation. Evelyn Lindner, who's a psychologist who studies war and conflict, she calls humiliation the nuclear bomb of the emotions. And I think that's right. Mm -hmm. You know, in every case I followed, whether it was the politician in California sort of lost his way in high conflict or the former gang leader in Chicago, Curtis, who spent many years in a vendetta, um, in every case they found that It started because they felt disrespected Mm. and humiliated. Mm -hmm. But, you know, humiliation is a really interesting, is a really interesting emotion. And it's different from a lot of other emotions. So I think that's worth noting that it's subjective, right? So it's often conflict entrepreneurs who make us feel humiliated, who frame grievances as humiliating, right? Mm -hmm. So that's something to watch out for. Um, There's some really interesting research by uh, Nico Frida, who studied, um, interviewed Holocaust survivors, as an example, where the male Holocaust survivors talked about how humiliated they felt when the guards in this camp would force them to make and remake their beds over and over. And it was humiliating. Hmm. And then the female Holocaust survivors to whom the same thing had happened were also irritated and frustrated and angry about that behavior, rightly so, but they didn't characterize it as humiliating, right? So it, it's, it's subjective depending on your identity going into the conflict and what you think of as, um, you know, what you deserve and what you're entitled to and what you're not. And so humiliation is a really, (laughs) is a really dangerous emotion to incite. You really are giving your opponent a weapon. And I was thinking about that because one of the ways when I was a girl that I was told to sometimes respond to public racist comments was to echo back what the person was saying to me. So for example, Mm -hmm. I would echo back to them, are you saying that because I'm a South Asian woman, I can't be an astrophysicist, for example? And I always thought that could work, but it would also sound really ridiculous because that's a ridiculous thing to think. And couldn't that just blow up in my face if they hear how ridiculous they sound? Hmm, that's interesting. It, we, what you've done there is something, there's been some really cool research on this by Aaron Halpern and his team of uh, conflict researchers in Israel about you can take something to the extreme, like the extreme, like paradoxical thinking, where you say, oh, well, obviously that means I can't do this, you know, and and sometimes that will kind of nudge people out of their thinking. It, it can be risky and mm-hmm. it depends whenever, when you have a power imbalance like that, right? right. You may not want to engage depending right. on the situation. Um, so 
I think the, the key is to, you know, a lot, we've seen a lot of sort of shunning and shaming go on on social media and also in person. Mm -hmm. And this, by the way, happens in every country that is extremely polarized. Uh, it's not just the United States, but it, it typically backfires, yeah. right? Um, because it, anytime people feel humiliated, especially by someone outside of their group, they typically use that to their advantage, right? right? And 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 become stronger and more dedicated to the conflict. You know, right. they, in interviews with more than 200 people involved in conflicts in Somalia and Rwanda, Evelyn Lindner found that humiliation permeated their stories of victimization and persecution, often told by the same people. Let's go to the phones. We have a call from Joe in San Francisco. Hi, Joe. Hi, good morning. Um, one of the things that I've been that I noticed or that I've noticed in my past history is that sometimes conflict itself can generate more conflict because two people have a very different uh, perception or, or attribute different meanings to what conflict itself means. Like one person can feel, oh, I'm having a conflict with this person. This is interesting. I'm learning something. While the other person is thinking, oh, there's conflict. There must be something wrong with our relationship. And then the fact that there is conflict itself creates additional conflict because either one person doesn't want to continue talking or arguing and the other person insists and then there's more conflict because now they're talking about the conflict and not the issue that brought the conflict to begin with. Right. How do you come to understand that that difference in interpreting what conflict means can, or how do you meet that, that gap to, to address the fact that one person wants to understand why don't you like X, Y, Z, and the other person's like, well, what's wrong with not liking X, Y, Z? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, Amanda, what's your response to that? Yeah, I love that because <laughs> conflict does, it can take a, on a life of its own, right? Like it has its own momentum. And, and in high conflict, it really begins to run on, on autopilot. And it is the reality. It takes over. Um, so it's absolutely true that different people experience conflict, the same conflict, very differently. And some people are much more comfortable with arguments and conflict. And it's, it's fun for them. It's intellectually engaging, whereas other people are feeling it and experiencing it totally differently. So here is, it in a way, like the crockpot challenge again, right? It's like, what are we really arguing about here? And what are you feeling about it? And can I slow it down enough to understand like your like glimpse what you are experiencing and seeing and share with you what I am experiencing and seeing because they can be wildly different. And that's when you get into trouble. Absolutely. Mm. Let's take a call from Andrew in San Rafael. Hi, Andrew. Hello. What's your question? Uh, great program, by the way. And uh, I really uh, appreciate uh, the presentation that you and your, uh, your speaker are, are giving us. I worked as a administrator, teacher and, and, and uh, administrator in the Illinois Department of Corrections for some years and specialized in setting up new schools in, uh, or education programs in prisons. My first was a maximum security prison, and I worked in what was called the segregation unit. My job was to start a new education program where it had never worked before. Uh, and in fact, my, uh, my boss took me uh, to the, 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 the unit and said, we've tried this two times before, and it's failed each time. So I want you to set up an education program. When you fail, don't worry, we'll bring you over to the regular school. 
Uh, so I knew that I was, you know, definitely heading uphill. The biggest problem was that prisons uh, work primarily on, on use of force as the, the, the first and last conflict resolution method. And I had a lot of opposition from the lieutenant who was in charge of the unit. So uh, just specifics, the segregation unit is mainly disciplinary and protective custody. So, um, you know, there's already like three strikes against, you know, all of the inmates. And there were 500 inmates in this unit. What I found was that he defined everything in terms of traditional use of force. And he saw me as uh, a threat to the order and discipline of the unit. My job was to just get, you know, inmates out every morning, bring them to an enclosed area for school mm-hmm. within the unit. Mm-hmm. And um, anytime inmates move, that's considered uh, a risk of uh, threat. Uh, and- Andrew, what, what can you tell us about what you did perhaps differently that helped to perhaps de-escalate conflicts in, in the prison? Good. I'm glad you uh, got me focused. Mm -hmm. Getting to the point, um, because of all the conflict and the resistance, I began to research conflict resolution and uh, found uh, the work of Felix Pondy and some other researchers who had redefined conflict resolution as, as, or conflict as five stages and without going into, you know, all the details. Mm -hmm. Violence is, of course, the most primitive and that's the first level. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere toward the middle, the third is compromise, which is not the best mm-hmm. resolution because everybody has to give up something. Mm. And that that means that they're going to come back, you know, yeah. with from a different approach for the same conflict. And what they found was that redefinition, or the fifth level, which is much of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. Uh, finding the underlying issue, which may have yeah. nothing to do with the actual <laughs> it, conflict. It's the crockpot again. We cannot get away from the crockpot. Andrew, I'm going to stop you just there because I want to get Amanda's brief reflection on this. That is so fascinating. And yeah, I mean, it also makes me think, Andrew, I mean, this challenge you're up against and the men in this prison we're up against and the people working there is is so diabolical mm-hmm. it, it sort of puts in perspective our political disputes yeah. like how how much you know how let how long are we going to get let this go right how much harder could it be to do what he did and i do think that compromise is not the goal i totally agree with that because you give something up which means there's still an understory that's alive in that conflict and it's going to come back to bite you sooner or later so half the challenge at least is figuring out what are we really fighting about what do I care most about here? And once that's been acknowledged and everyone knows it and has heard it, then you find you can let go of a lot of mm. other things. And so it loosens your grip on all the other extraneous you know, squabbles that we have. One of the most heartbreaking things about high conflict that I've seen over and over is watching people fight with people they actually don't need to fight with, mm. drain their energy and time and goodwill and spirit with people that are not, not actually the enemy, right? So mm-hmm. it's very important to figure out what is the crockpot all about and not aim for compromise or surrender or unity or certainly not violence, but figure out how we can reimagine this conflict and our lives together. Because 
we are married to each other as Americans, whether we like it or not. We can get divorced, but we have kids together. So we have to fight smarter, fight like we have kids together. We have a brief call from Arthur Corta Madeira. Hi, welcome, Arthur. We only have about one minute left. So I'm going to ask you to be brief. What's your question? I have a friend who hasn't talked to me for 10 years. Oof. This is a friend. This is a friend who won't tell me why he's angry at me. Yet I um, we go back. We went to the March on Washington 50 years ago. When his wife and he were about to break up, I brought them back together again. He suddenly stopped talking to me. His children can't figure it out. His wife can't figure it out. How can I get him to tell me what he's upset about? Wow, 10 years. Amanda, what's your response? That's so painful, Arthur, and you're not alone. There are a lot of people who have been ghosted in this way, uh, more people now than maybe in the past for lots of reasons. And I love the idea that once in the past, you helped break an impasse between this person and his wife. Often it is a third party who can break that impasse. Mm. You know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the American revolutionaries, stopped talking to each other for 11 years over a dispute. And it was someone else, Benjamin Rush, a, a mutual friend, who told them both that they should talk to each other, that they really needed to talk to each other. And eventually it worked. So sometimes a third person can create an opening where there was none. Absolutely. Amanda, thank you so much for this conversation. That was Amanda Ripley, author of High Conflict. And also we spoke earlier with Omari Sinclair with Oakland's Youth Alive. Tomorrow at 9am, I'll be talking about how vaccinated people who are single are dipping back into the dating market. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Seema Yasmin. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Katie Orr. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.